Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello and welcome to Reloscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions in life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Aditi Kuti. Let's get on with the show. Hey, Monica, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, Now, I guess before I really get into the episode, just a quick warning um, that we are going to be talking about some pretty sensitive topics, in particular dating violence, um, domestic violence, a little bit about abuse. Uh, So if that is a sensitive topic for you, uh, maybe have a listen another time when you feel a bit more ready or skip this one if it's kind of not uh, something within your uh, capability right now. Um, But I guess moving on from that, um, I'm here with Dr. Monica Kearney. Um, She is a counseling, PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Maryland. Uh, Can you tell me, can can you tell us um, the audience a bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I go by Dr. K. Um, That's what my students call me. I'm a lecturer at the University of Maryland in College Park. And essentially what I do is a lot of teaching around multicultural related topics. So I teach a class on multicultural psychology, counseling psychology. Um, One of my favorite courses to teach is psychology of women. And the reason I am able to teach these classes is because of my doctorate in counseling psych. We do a lot of multicultural work in that training program. And my research really focused on relationships, dating violence and gender roles. So that really lends itself well to my position now. Um, I'm also really passionate about student engagement and social justice and advocacy work. And so I'm starting to get into research around that. Um, But ultimately, yeah, I, I do a ton of teaching around these topics. So really excited to have the opportunity to talk more about it today. That is such a cool and incredibly important mix of topics. And I think it's even cooler that your students get to learn about all of that and also call you Dr. K. It's kind of like the Miss Frizzle of university almost. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I felt like when I finally graduated with my doctorate, people were like, oh, aren't you so excited for people to call you doctor? And I was like, not really. Like, it feels so unapproachable and unrelatable, but I did work hard for this degree. Like, how could I find that balance? So we ended on Dr. K. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I love that. Um, we are going to get to know you um, a little bit more before we kind of dive into our topic today, which is about dating violence. Um, are you happy to answer a few quick questions? Of course. All right. Uh, what is your favorite book? Right now, it changes all the time depending on what I'm reading. But right now, my favorite book is All About Love by Bell Hooks. I got married recently and was really on the search of you know, what is love all about? And that book, like, I like to say that book read me, I didn't read the book. And basically, it really resonated with me about the struggles that as a society we have when it comes to opening up ourselves to love and romantic relationships. So love that book, highly recommend. 
congratulations on getting married as well. Um, what about a favorite movie? This one, this is hard for me. I love so many movies, um, but I ultimately go to Disney movies. And right now, my favorite Disney movie is Moana. There's something about the granddaughter, grandmother relationship that just like makes me cry every time I watch it. Moana's a classic. I love Moana I love so it. much. Um, what's a podcast that you've been listening to lately? One of my favorite podcasts is called Lovers and Friends by Shan Boudram. It's all about couples and relationships, and they definitely talk a little bit about like sexual intimacy in there as well. Um, but I really love it because she explores how people set up their relationships that work for them. So it's not just about, you know, heterosexual, monogamous relationships, but there's lots of variety in that as well. So highly recommend that podcast too. Yeah, absolutely. Listen to ours and listen to that one as well if, if you, if you want to know more about relationships. Do you have a famous role model that you've kind of looked up to at some point? Yeah, I think my... One of my favorite uh, famous role models is Tracy Ellis Ross. Um, she's an actress, and I really love that she's just unapologetically herself in whatever space that she occupies. And I also love that she's very open about being a single woman who is older, who has really focused and prioritized her career, and isn't necessarily on the hunt for romantic partners. I know we're going to be talking about relationships today. But I love that there's like different strokes for different folks and maybe a relationship, a romantic relationship isn't your number one priority. So I love mm. that about her. I think being satisfied with yourself and who you are is a big part of relationships anyway. So definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what's the last course that you completed? Ooh, good question. The last course I completed technically it was um an internship course so for my doctoral program we spend a year being mental health counselors full-time and we're technically still under supervision so we're we're still trainees um but there is a lot of like seminars that we have to attend as part of that and i think the last one i officially attended probably had to do with diversity and inclusion related issues in the mental health space. Um, mm -hmm. So definitely something I still draw upon in my work uh, with my students today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that kind of brings us to the end of our questions. We know you now, um, you and the audience uh, are best friends. <laughs> so <Yes. Perfect>. we, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to move on now to our interview segment, um, which we're going to dive into um, dating violence in a second. Um, but, our podcast is about relationships and romantic relationships in particular. So to start broadly, what is a relationship to you? How would you define it? Yeah, I think when I think about a relationship, it is really any kind of connection that you have with another person. Um, so there's lots of different types of relationships. We could have professional relationships, like for me in the university setting with my students, we have this very professional relationship. Um, but we could also have these relationships that have more intimacy involved with them. And those could be romantic. So there's more of that romantic connection between you and a partner. And they could also be platonic, right? Like I have a lot of love for my friends. It's just a different type of love than I would have for my husband, for example. 
then yeah, any relationship or any kind of connection that you have with another person and levels of intimacy might vary. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in your opinion, do, you know, relationships, particularly the romantic relationships, do they hold the same kind of meaning and structure as they did maybe decades ago? Yeah, I think that is a complicated question because I think as far as the meaning portion of that goes, I think 100%. We still place a lot of emphasis on finding our long-term romantic partner, them being a person that meets all of our needs, whether that be emotional, financial, security needs. Um, But I do think the purpose and function of relationships has changed over time. I think historically women have been um, taught that they need to find that romantic partner to have that financial security and stability. Um, But with more women focusing on their careers and being in the workplace and being really successful financially, they may not be relying on their partners for that as much nowadays. And now I think we are focusing more on that emotional connection that we have with romantic partners. And we tend to place a lot of emphasis on that. Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, and I guess, you know, not to segue, oh, there's there's no good way to segue away from that and to dating violence, but how do you kind of to provide context to our conversation, how do you define dating violence? Yeah, so dating violence is a pattern of behaviors that we see where one partner clearly has more power and control in the relationship than the other partner. And dating violence can take a lot of different forms. Um, I think the one that we're probably most uh, used to seeing or most comfortable being able to point out is physical violence. Um, But it could also be emotional and psychological violence. So really putting your partner down or trying to manipulate them. I think now we use the term gaslighting a lot more. That could definitely be an indicator that there might be some power differentials happening in the relationship. Um, It could also be sexual, so forcing your dating partner to perform sexual acts that they're uncomfortable with doing and that they didn't give consent to. And it could be economic or financial, so preventing a dating partner from uh, maintaining a stable job or having a steady income, forcing your dating partner to give over their income um, so that you can have more of that power and that control over the relationship. Mm -hmm. And what... What is, if there is a difference uh, between um, violence and abuse, are they are they the same thing or is there like a slight difference in terminology? I think when we tend to talk about violence, we do kind of interchangeably use violence and abuse. Um, I think abuse tends to be more of a concept that is all encompassing, right? So a lot of the things that I've mentioned, some people would say, is that violence, right? Is gaslighting violence? And perhaps it doesn't feel violent because we have a certain connotation with violence. So abuse oftentimes is a word that we would use that makes more sense. Like maybe it's not violent, but there is something that is abusive about it. There's something that where it's clear that it's uncomfortable, it doesn't feel right, and that person doesn't feel safe to be their full authentic selves in their relationship. Mm-hmm. And I guess... I feel like it's an obvious question, but how does violence affect relationships? What are all the ways it can, yeah, deal yeah. with that? Yeah, I'm, it might be an obvious question, but it's a really good question to ask, right? Like, 
from what we know, um, abuse and violence in a relationship really dampers the trust and security and safety in that relationship. Um, but not only just the trust and safety in that relationship, but also the trust and safety that a person feels like they have within themselves. A lot of people who end up in abusive relationships feel a lot of shame around the fact that they ended up in this type of relationship. They may feel a lot of shame that they stood in this relationship. They may wonder, can they trust their judgment in future relationships? Um, so I would say ultimately and overall, one of the biggest things that violence impacts is that sense of trust and safety with your partner, but also with yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we, we, there's a couple of questions that we'll kind of dive into that a bit more later. But what are some of the warning signs, like those red flags? How how early can we tell? Yeah, this is a really great question. And what my research really focused on, because in the literature, it was pretty clear that we understood what violence was, what abuse was, but there was less work around what are the warning signs of the red flags that people should be looking out for in their relationships. Um, and so from what we know, these warning signs don't appear immediately in a relationship. And there's a very good reason for that. People who are abusive or violent need to draw in the person that they are going to be abusive or violent towards. And you can't do that if right out of the gate you are showcasing these red flags. People would pick up on them pretty immediately and they would end the relationship to protect themselves. So generally what happens is at the start of the relationship, an abuser is really charming. Um, they have a lot of charisma. They draw you in with their personality. And then all of a sudden things start to feel like there's a shift happening. And some of the warning signs that can be indicators that potentially your relationship may become abusive, um, one of them is monitoring behavior. So if your dating partner is tracking you without your knowledge or permission, and when I say tracking, I mean like using your social media to see where you are, who you're talking to, maybe checking your phone behind your back without you knowing, looking through your DMs and your text messages and your emails. So really just finding ways to kind of keep tabs on you, if that makes sense. Um, we also have controlling behaviors. And so this is when your dating partner is making decisions on your behalf without you asking them to do so. So telling you how you should dress or if you go to a restaurant, ordering for you, for example. Um, so saying something like, oh, I think you should have a salad tonight versus a steak that you really wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have demeaning behaviors. So these are behaviors that a dating partner will use to try to intentionally lower the self-esteem of the person that they're seeing. So telling them something along the lines of, if you leave me, no one else will love you the way that I do. No one else would deal with you. You can't do anything right. So things that are meant to be, again, these intentional hits towards your self-esteem. Um, we have jealous and possessive behaviors that we could look for as another red flag. So treating your dating partner as if you have some kind of ownership over them. And usually the way that this manifests is really questioning whether your dating partner is fully committed to you. So maybe... Um, essentially kind of like accusing them of flirting with everybody when it's like very clear that the dating partner is not flirting with them. 
or just being like really suspicious about your relationship. So asking a lot of questions like, how did you meet? Um, what do you do when you're with them? Just really showing this distrust of how you are behaving outside of the relationship. And this could also look like really wanting your dating partner to only spend time with you. So basically, if you share that you want to hang out with friends, an abusive dating partner might say something along the lines of like, I don't want you to see your friends tonight. And they'll just continue to use that excuse till eventually you feel completely disconnected from your other social support. And then the final red flag that I'll talk about are threatening and aggressive behaviors. So a dating partner that is trying to instill fear in you by using threats. So threatening to harm themselves if you leave, threatening to harm you if you leave. Um, This could even be threatening to harm property or just making their dating partner afraid with a glare or a menacing stare that they give them. So those are the main red flags that we see happening in abusive relationships. And it's not to say if one is present that it's definitely an indicator that your relationship will become abusive at some point. But definitely if there's more than one happening, we start to worry that there's the potential for this relationship to become abusive. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Especially when, you know, that kind of idea of someone being very charming is unfortunately, it's hard to tell whether it's, it's in a, it's in a, um, whether you should be suspicious about it or not. I I think in that early dating stage, it's kind of like, well, you kind of have to be a bit charming, but yeah, it's hard to, is there, is there actually a way of being able to tell if perhaps it's a little too much? Yeah, we call it love bombing. So when you like just meet someone and all of a sudden they're all about you, they have nothing else going on in their life. They just want to spend all their time with you. They're giving you maybe a lot of gifts or extravagant gifts. It just feels like if you're having this thought of like, this feels too good to be true, or you're just like waiting for the behavior to change because it's just not sustainable to only focus all of that attention on one person for that long that's usually a good indicator that maybe i should you know be a little bit wary of what this person's intentions are Mm -hmm. is there any research or are you aware of any have you done any research yourself into like how many people abusive people engage in these behaviors intentionally or unintentionally Yeah, I haven't done any research myself, um, but from what my understanding of of where research is right now is all of these behaviors are intentional, but whether the person is consciously aware that they're like trying to get somebody into their grasp is a little different. They know that they want to have some kind of power and control in the relationship and they know exactly like how to get the relationship there but if you were to ask them like are you intentionally trying to hurt your dating partner they would probably say no Mm, mm, yep yep and i guess how do you recognize and we talked a little about this specifically about love bombing but kind of looking into some of those other red flags how do you tell the difference between a healthy and an unhealthy relationship behavior yeah I think any time where you feel like you can't have a sense of self or a life outside of your dating partner, it's usually an indicator that that's an unhealthy relationship behavior. 
So if I want to, again, like hang out with my friends or see my family and my dating partner uses some type of tactic to prevent me from doing that, not really allowing me to pursue other relationships that are important to me. I'm not allowed to have a sense of self outside of them. This is a healthy relationship behavior is like somebody who's just super supportive of what your goals are in life, whether that's to have really meaningful connections with other people or if that's to pursue hobbies or career interests, that person is going to be super supportive and be like, great, what do you need from me, babe? How can I help you? Versus like trying to hold you back or prevent you from living your full kind of authentic life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What are some of the misconceptions around dating violence? It's a really good question. There are a few that come to mind right away. Um, one of the misconceptions is that these abusive behaviors are really easy to point out, but research shows us this research was done by knowledge networks and they found that 54% of college men and 59% of college women say that they have trouble recognizing dating violence or these unhealthy behaviors. And again, that makes sense because in the beginning of a relationship, these behaviors could seem like somebody who just really loves and cares about you no, don't go out with your friends tonight, hang out with me, you know, it could seem like, oh, this person just really likes me, they're into me, they're into my personality, my looks, whatever the case may be. And so it can be hard to recognize that as potentially somebody trying to isolate you from your social support. I think another misconception that I hear a lot is that it's really easy to leave these types of relationships. Um, but on average, it takes women seven times to be able to fully leave an abusive relationship. And we don't even have data on men um, who are in abusive relationships. And I think that that's something we need to work on, definitely. Um, and that could be for a lot of different reasons. It could take a long time for people to leave because one, it's the most dangerous time for a woman when she's leaving an abusive relationship. Usually their partner recognizes that they're losing control and so they're more likely to lash out with more harmful forms of physical violence around that time. Um, it could also be that you have really intertwined yourself in the relationship as usually perpetrators of violence want you to do. And so maybe you don't have the financial means to leave. Maybe there are children involved and you want to make sure that your children have an intact family. Um, maybe you have no place to go and you have no one else to rely on um and then also i don't and i don't want to underestimate this factor but maybe you love this person i think that that's something we also have to contend with even though this person might be harming you you can still have a lot of care and admiration and love for them and that constantly keeps us going back to people who may not be the healthiest for us um so I think those are two of the big misconceptions. I think one more misconception has to do with people who have um, experienced dating violence and they're currently in the relationship. I know a lot of survivors of dating violence felt like if they just stuck with the relationship, if they just like, you know, stuck it out and just glued themselves fully to this relationship, that their partner would eventually just change without seeking help without like confronting their abusive behaviors, their partner would just see how harmful they're being and like one day just make the switch. And unfortunately, our research tells us that that's not the case. 
the more you stay in a relationship that is abusive, the more lethal forms of violence are likely to be used. And also, the harder it is for you to escape it. You tend to have more abusive episodes happening, and they're happening at faster rates than they were at the beginning of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And I guess for a lot of these people, you know, you mentioned it takes seven times to, at least uh, for women, to escape an abusive relationship. But I've completely lost my train of thought. I think like I think I think for a lot of these people perhaps um it there's that I can fix him mentality which is why they stick around because I think women in particular you know the data for men might be quite different and the reasons for them might be quite different but for women we're often socialized to believe that we can keep a relationship going like it's on us yeah. the onus is on us Definitely. And I think for women, there's a sense of pride in being able to have those relationships, maintain those relationships. And again, I think for women, there's still a lot of pressure to find that long-term romantic partner. Oftentimes, if you see a woman who is dating around, the first remark that I'll hear people make is like, man, she can't keep a partner. She can't keep a man. And I'm like, is that really like her her goal in life is to keep a partner but we do socialize women around yeah that is your goal to find a partner to keep a partner and so it can be a lot harder to accept that this relationship is harming me and the best thing for me is to sever this relationship Mm-mm. how how does power and control play a role in this we talked about it a little bit earlier Definitely. Power and control is what's at the heart of any kind of dating violence um, situation. Really wanting to feel more powerful in the relationship than your dating partner. Have someone that you can manipulate into um, doing what you want, behaving in the way that you want, and essentially feeling like you can assert your dominance over another person. I often hear people say, well, how do you know? It's dating violence versus that partner just has an anger issue. And we always say that if it was an anger issue, that person would lash out at everybody. They wouldn't save it just for the dating partner that they feel like is somehow lower than them or weaker than them. So power and control is at the heart of it. And there's lots of different tactics that people will use to try to maintain that power and control. Um, One that stands out to me is called minimizing, denying, and blaming. So minimizing the abusive behavior, it wasn't that bad, you're perceiving this wrong, denying that it even happened, like, oh, I don't know, I was drunk or I was under the influence, that won't happen again. And then also blaming their dating partner. Well, if you would have just done X, Y, and Z, I wouldn't have responded to you in that way. And all of that creates the psychological manipulation for the person who is surviving that kind of abuse. Um, And they, again, feel like they just don't have the same amount of power in their relationship. They're not seen as equals to the person who's perpetrating the violence. Mm -hmm. For women who might maybe recognize some of these signs, um, understand what's happening beyond kind of that individual need to, you know, want to keep their man, why might they stay? Are there other societal reasons involved in that? Yeah, definitely. I think there are a lot of different reasons why people stay. And I remember, I think it was in 2014, 
there was a hashtag that went viral on Twitter where women were telling all of the reasons why they stayed in the relationship. Um, a lot of them had to do with fear of retaliation. If I left, I didn't know what he was going to do to me, what he was going to do to other people that I love. A lot of women spoke on feeling pressured from their religious community, um, having values around having a family, maintaining a family. Um, women talked about really having no resources or social support outside of their dating partner. And so they really had no other choice but to stay in the relationship until they felt financially secure and until they had made enough connections to be able to leave safely. So there's lots of different reasons. And again, I, I just want to reiterate, I don't want to underestimate also that love could play a huge role in why people stay. I think this person will change. Maybe there's hope for our relationship. Maybe if I just do X, Y, and Z, I won't make them mad. They won't lash out at me. Um, so I think there's also a lot of hope, a lot of love that are built into these relationships. And a lot of women will hold on to that when they're trying to evaluate whether or not they should stay. Mm -hmm. And how does technology and social media come into this? Yeah, I think in this day and age, the um, monitoring behaviors, for example, can be facilitated very well because of social media and technology. Um, I can go and use an app like Find My Friends, and I can know exactly where you are, even if you didn't tell me that's where you were, uh, where you were going, right? Um, I can easily, if I know your password, I can check your DMs, I can check your text messages, I can look at your emails. We have so much communication that happens over technology, over our phones in particular. And so I can essentially just like have a log of what you're doing throughout the day when I'm not with you just by looking at your phone. Um, mm -hmm. I also think that social media has this effect on us where we, we might be looking towards other people who are on social media to determine whether our relationship is healthy or unhealthy. And I think that that can be extremely hard and problematic because a lot of times relationships that get glorified on social media are not the healthiest but they might seem exciting they might seem enticing in some way um, and so i think that that can be really harmful because if we see people who are going through something similar and they're choosing to stay we may say oh so what i'm going through is not that bad and i could choose to stay as well when you say looking at other relationships and social media, are you referring to perhaps people within their circle or people they know, or are you talking about, you know, celebrities and perhaps media and that kind of thing? Because I feel like on social yeah. media, we get a mix of everything now. Yeah, I think both and all, right? Like looking at people that I may actually know in real life and see what their relationship looks like and how it plays out on social media. Um, but also looking at people who are famous and what their relationships look like and how their drama plays out on social media. And again, I think we, we kind of glamorize the dramatics in a relationship. Again, those relationships seem really a lot more exciting than the folks who are like calm and happy and in very healthy, stable relationships. And so I think especially young people can look at those relationships and think, I want something that that's that's that passionate, that that's exciting. Um, 
and not really think I want a type of romantic connection that makes me feel more safe and calm and secure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I guess, how can people who have assessed that they're in an abusive relationship and feel ready to leave, how can they seek help? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of resources out there. One of my favorites is a website, loveisrespect.org. Um, so if you're wondering whether or not your relationship is healthy, they have a quick little quiz that you can take that can help you determine whether or not those relationship behaviors you're noticing are healthy or unhealthy. But they also have a live chat feature. So you can text chat with somebody, you can type in chat with somebody who can help you create a safety plan. Like I mentioned before, oftentimes the most dangerous time for a person who is being abused is when they decide to leave the relationship. So you wanna make sure you have a pretty solid plan on how you're gonna leave, how you're gonna do that safely, and if there's people that you can rely on to help you do that. Um, So I really love that particular website. Highly recommend that for folks who are interested in figuring out like, how how am I gonna leave? How am I going to uncouple from this person? And I also wanna just say that Oftentimes, our social support are people that we can rely on, but we don't automatically think that they are. Um, But maybe they are like friends or family members who want your safety and your health, and they're willing to help you leave this relationship and protect you as much as they're able to do so. So I think also relying on people around you, if you have that support, don't be afraid to reach out to them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I guess that was that leads well into my next question, which is how can friends and family and like your close community support someone who is undergoing um, dating violence? Yeah, I love this question because I think oftentimes we have the best of intentions and we're like, I just don't know even where to start. Um, so an acronym that I like to use that I think could be helpful for people to remember is STOP. So if somebody comes to you and they say, I think I'm in an abusive relationship, think to yourself, stop. The S is for make sure that you're staying safe. Um, So is the abuser around? If so, maybe this isn't the perfect time to have that conversation. You want to make sure you're in a safe place to continue to have this dialogue. So S is for stop. T is for um, tell that person that you're concerned. I think sometimes for people in abusive relationships, we don't realize how much danger we might be in or how much people truly care about us until we hear it. So tell that person that you're concerned for them, that you're concerned for their safety. And then O is to offer support. So something that's really important for people who are experiencing abusive relationships is to have autonomy over what happens next. So much of their autonomy in the relationship is taken away. So you want to support them being able to make their own decisions. Perhaps they don't want to get the authorities involved. Perhaps they're not ready to leave the relationship. So asking them, what do you need from me, is probably the most helpful thing that somebody in the community or close relationship can do for somebody who's experiencing dating violence. And then P is provide resources. So tell them about loveisrespect.org, give them a hotline that they could call, help them connect to a mental health professional, just essentially lend more of that tangible support of here's something I can offer you, here's something I can give you that may help you leave that relationship. 
Mm, mm, absolutely. And I think I really like the O, um, which where you mentioned asking them what they might need as well, because I think sometimes when we see a loved one struggling in any situation, we tend to jump the gun and provide the help we think they need. Um, Absolutely. It's always good to ask first and make sure. Definitely. And I'll add on to that, just meeting the person where they are. So it's really important that if they don't really, if they don't label their relationship as abusive, you don't label it as abusive either. Um, And the reason for that is because that can send them on the defense automatically. They might start to defend their romantic partner because they don't want that person to look down on their romantic partner. Um, So you just kind of want to match their vibe and their energy and just meet them where they are. If they say, I think I'm in an unhealthy relationship, that's the exact wording that you want to use back with them. Right, yep, yep, yep. And I guess, how can what are the societal um issues that need to change in order to address dating violence yeah so much um there's so much that i think we need to do a better job of examining um i think i mentioned already the glamorization of these toxic unhealthy relationships i was recently re-watching the original gossip girl um, episode. And I remember being young and first watching it and being obsessed with Chuck and Blair's relationship. And now that I've studied dating violence, I'm a little bit older. Those episodes are a little bit dated. I'm like, wow, we were really glamorizing the toxicity that we saw within those relationships, thinking that it was exciting and added drama. It was all about passion when really there was a lot of power and control differentials happening with between Chuck and Blair. Um, So examining things like that, and it's not just Gossip Girl, we see it all over our media where we glamorize toxic or dangerous or intensely passionate relationships in that way. Twilight comes to mind. Yes, Twilight was a huge one too. Mm. Uh, There's so many. I feel like we could have a whole (laughs) podcast just like examining shows. Yeah, (laughs) Um, for sure. For sure. Dynamic. (laughs) Um, So I think that's one thing. Um, But I also think as a society, we need to reevaluate how we're viewing masculinity. Um, I think that anyone could end up in an abusive relationship. And so I want to make that really clear but a lot of times these violent relationships are gender based as well where we have the person who has less power in our society experiencing the violence and the person who has more power in our society perpetrating the violence and oftentimes if we're thinking about like heterosexual relationships it's the woman who's experiencing the violence and the man who's perpetrating it And I think that has a lot to do with how we socialize men to grow up and to behave in relationships. We tell them not to showcase any emotions except anger and frustration. We tell them to not um, rely on other people, but then we toss them into these romantic relationships and we're like, you could open up to this person in particular. And that might be really challenging for them to navigate. We also socialize young boys to believe that violence is a reasonable tool that they can use to reach an end goal that they might have. And so if the goal is to have power and control in the relationship, I can use violence as long as it gets me to that end goal. So I think there's a lot to unpack there as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, 
I guess we can move on from that to our practice slash habit experiment debrief um, and and talk a little bit about one of the things we haven't been able to chat about yet is how to heal um, from violence within a relationship. Uh, so what's something that you recommend uh, to yeah. people who have perhaps just left it? Definitely. I think that this is so important. Um I think I mentioned earlier that people who have experienced dating violence may have a lot of shame around that. They may, again, lose trust or connection with themselves, wonder if they could trust themselves in the next relationship that they end up in. And so one thing that folks can do is try to increase their self-compassion. Try to rid themselves of the shame that they feel because regardless of ending up in that relationship, staying in that relationship, it should have never happened to you. You should have never been met with violence in that relationship. So giving yourself some self-compassion and, and one way that I think people can do that is through practicing positive affirmations. They are definitely a little bit awkward to do at the beginning, but looking yourself in the mirror and saying things like, I'm worthy of having a healthy relationship. I'm worthy of feeling safe with my romantic partner. I deserve happiness. I deserve to trust the person I'm with. I deserve to be able to rely on my own judgment about a person. And ultimately what ends up happening is at the beginning, people don't believe anything that's coming out of their mouth. It's really hard to say those things to yourself and believe yourself. But the more that you practice it, the more that you do it, the more that you start to believe those things, you start to internalize them. And ultimately, you can kind of end doing that practice whenever it feels right for you. But I found that most people love to continue to do it because you're just giving yourself a little pep talk. You're hyping yourself up. You know, maybe you do it first thing in the morning uh, while you're getting ready. Maybe you do it at the end of the night, but you really are just speaking more positivity and love into yourself. Um, so having that that true, genuine love and self-compassion for yourself can really aid you on the healing journey. Uh, what, are, what are three good things about positive affirmations? Okay, yeah, definitely. Uh, one is that they're free. They're free to do, they cost no money, they're really easy to implement. You could just wake up in the morning and choose to start doing them. And I think that's really important because uh, mental health professionals are amazing, but we all can't afford to see them, especially thinking of American healthcare, not the greatest system, um, and it can be very expensive for people. So they're Australian, easy to implement. The Australian yeah. mental health system is not that much easier. So Good to yeah. know. Good to know. <laughs> and I think it's super hard to navigate sometimes too. So being able to do something on your own, in your own time, they're free. It's amazing. Um, the next thing that I would say that makes them really awesome is that they're customizable. So wherever it is that you're needing, you can add that into your affirmation, uh, which I love. So not everybody has to say the same things. You could say truly what's going to speak to you and what works for you. Um, and then the third thing that I really love about them is, again, it's just like a little hype up self-love session for yourself. And I think we spend so much time focusing on how do we show up in relationships with other people, but I think it's just as important to examine how we show up in relationship to ourselves. How are we connected to ourselves? How are we feeling about ourselves? It really gives you a good barometer for how am I doing on my self-love journey? So I love that about them as well. 
yeah yeah for sure and i guess what are the challenges people have you mentioned that earlier that at the start it can feel a bit silly but is there anything else apart from that yeah i think at the start it could definitely feel awkward it could feel a little bit silly i think apart from that is that people just don't stick with them long enough because it feels awkward because it feels silly because i don't believe myself i am quick to say this is not working and i'm just gonna give up on them um, and so I think those would tend to be the two biggest challenges, feeling a little awkward and then giving up too quickly. But I would encourage anyone who's interested in doing these affirmations to just stick with them. And it might take you a month, it might take you a few months, it might take you a year, but the more that you practice them, the more helpful that they can be. Yeah, I'm definitely guilty of giving up on positive affirmations myself, just because like I'm find it very hard to believe myself at the very beginning. Yeah. But I think sometimes, I mean, every single positive affirmation I have naturalized is on accident. <laughs> and it does, it does work uh, when, when you kind of stick with it, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I've seen one going around social media recently on TikTok where people are saying things like, I'm lucky, things just work out for me, right? And I think that that's amazing. Um, but I think when you start to just kind of naturally think those things that it might happen on accident, it might not be an intentional practice. It does, it does feel life changing for a lot of people. So I would encourage you like, yeah, even if you can't do it intentionally at the same time every day to notice when you are starting to believe that you deserve good things and how that came to be. And then try to like really build off of that. If it's happening naturally for you, how can you like really hone in on that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For the people who do want to do it um, intentionally, what? how often do they set a certain time to do it? Um, how do you find the time? Like what are kind of the practicalities of actually taking this on? Yeah, I think it really depends on what works for you. Um, and so I would say the more you make something a routine, the more likely you are to do it. So I would encourage people to set a time aside every day. Like I said, I like to do them in the morning while I'm getting ready. I love to multitask. Um, but if you really like that just doesn't work for you, you're in a rush in the morning, maybe right before bed, maybe in the middle of the day during your lunch break really finding a time where you can just be by yourself, have those few minutes where you are just reciting those positive affirmations. Um, I would say that it, it don't have to be super long. Like if you, if it takes you one minute to say your affirmation, that's great. Just make sure you have a space where you can look your, look at yourself as you're doing it so that you can kind of gauge like, how am I believing this today? I'm not sure. I'm going to try again tomorrow. Um, so yeah, I would say just practically it works best if you could build it into your routine, maybe do something that you are already doing, but just making sure that you set aside a time at least once a day to try to practice them. Yeah. And I guess, how do you feel, what do you feel works best? Should you say it aloud to yourself or is it kind of thinking it in your head? Yeah. Really great question. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know what the research says about this. So this is 100% my very biased opinion. I hope that it works better if you say them out loud. There's something about hearing yourself say certain things that gets you to reflect on what it is that you just said. 
And it's similar in therapy. We could run through the same thought in our mind all, you know, constantly, constantly. And then we get in front of a therapist and we say it out loud and we're like, man, I'm being really hard on myself or I can't believe I just said that. I can't believe I'm thinking those thoughts. So there's something about getting them out of your head and actually into the atmosphere that helps you evaluate them a little bit differently. So I would recommend saying them out loud. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And how do you think this would impact someone's perception in life? Yeah, I think ultimately what research shows is that when we are more positive, we tend to have better mental health outcomes. Um, So a lot of this research is around gratitude, but I think it can also relate to positive affirmation. If we're looking out for positivity, if we're trying to speak positivity into ourselves, we tend to feel more connected with other people. We tend to overall just feel happier. We tend to have more life satisfaction. And there's even some research that says there's a connection between seeking out positivity and having better physical health outcomes as well. So less visits to the doctor. Um, So I think overall, you will just have a a happier, more connected um, experience with other people around you, but also just a better outlook, a more optimistic outlook on life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in your experience, are there kind of other practices or habits that you would combine with positive affirmations? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I think journaling is amazing too. Um, so I tend to recommend journaling to like all of my clients that I have had in the past. Um, again, there's something about taking those thoughts and putting them onto paper that does something differently for us than just thinking them in our head. So potentially you can write out those positive affirmations as you're saying them and then go back and take a look at what you were also journaling around that time about how you were feeling what you were doing and see you can actually track your progress see if you see any changes in how much you believe those positive affirmations and how optimistic you're being in your overall life satisfaction Um, So that's one reason I love journaling. It's like an easy way to like have data that you could look at and see how am I doing and how am I doing across time? Yeah, for sure. And I think when you mentioned journaling, I was thinking about what you said earlier about, you know, if you kind of your negative self-talk when you kind of voice it to your therapist, um, it can feel a bit silly. I feel like I feel the same way when I'm writing it out and my when I journal is like oh that's kind of like really stupid of me to think that actually um even if they are valid feelings or not it just changes I think a little when you put it on paper definitely I think there is like there's just something about taking it out of yourself and putting it into the atmosphere whether that be on paper saying it out loud that just gives you a second to pause and process what you just wrote or what you just said and think do I really believe that like you know, my logical side can look at that and say that that doesn't make any sense. But in my head, it made a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, So that brings us to the end of that section. We've got a couple of questions from our audience. Are you happy to answer them? Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, So I guess the first question is, um, what are some promising interventions or programs that you've seen that might help with preventing dating violence? 
Yeah, there's some, actually, I was a part of creating one. um, And that's where the STOP acronym actually came from. But we created an online intervention so it was easily accessible for people no matter where they were. It was pretty short. I think in total, it was probably around 30 to 40 minutes. Um, The first part of this intervention was just educating people about warning signs. The second part was educating people about barriers that might prevent them from intervening if they saw dating violence happening, um, whether that be with strangers or with friends or with family members. And then the third part was teaching them what to do if they notice that dating violence is happening. And what we found was that it was really effective, that really short prevention program really got people to understand these are the behaviors I'm looking out for. I need to recognize that these are the things that might prevent me from acting. And then here's what I can do to actually be helpful to somebody who might express to me that they are in an abusive relationship. So there's lots of really excellent like online interventions like that one. I also think that there is more conversations around dating violence happening. I noticed that in certain um, certain movies or certain TV shows, they'll give a content warning and then they'll also showcase like some resources that people can access. I think that's a really simple and effective way to have prevention efforts and intervention efforts as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the next question is, what are some questions we can ask a friend that we suspect might be experiencing dating violence? Oh, this is such a good question. I'm so glad that somebody asked this one. I think one of the first things that you can ask a friend is, do they feel safe? Um, do they feel supported in their relationship? Um, one question that I really like to ask people is, are they scared about bringing up something that they're concerned about in their relationship with their dating partner? Do they fear how their dating partner is going to respond to them? Um, And then I think on the the flip side of that, you can ask about positive, healthy behaviors that you would hope that your friend is experiencing too. So does this person support your goals? If the answer is no, even if it's not an abusive relationship, maybe it's unhealthy and maybe it's not a person that you should continue to see. Um, Does this person want to be involved in other aspects of your life? Like, do they want to meet your friends? Do they want to hang out with your family? Um, I think all of those are really good questions to assess whether or not this relationship is healthy or unhealthy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess the final question as well is, can abuse occur in teenage dating relationships? Absolutely, it can. It might look different than adult dating relationships. Like there may not be um, children involved. There may not be like financial or economic abuse involved. But 100% we see teen dating violence happening. Um, There's still a lot of those like tracking behaviors, a lot of those controlling behaviors. Um, And instead of economic abuse, we tend to see dating partners who try to prevent their, their partners from getting an education. So forcing their partners to skip class, um, not allowing their partners to study for an exam that's coming up. So same kind of behaviors, but just focused on the developmental stage that that teenager is in. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'm assuming I was also thinking about social media and technology just playing a much bigger role. Like, I don't know if teenagers are still on Snapchat, but I remember when Snapchat uh, 
it might still allow, I don't use it anymore, but it might still allow you to track um, the whereabouts of your friends. Um, yeah, I remember it being scarily accurate as well. So scarily accurate. I'm no yeah. longer on Snapchat either, but I do remember like oftentimes going to the map and looking to see like where my friends were, you know, just to get an idea of what, what folks are doing. Um, and noticing like I can like pretty much zoom into their house and like how scary that is that somebody could have that information on you. So yeah, 100% in teen dating relationships, I think social media plays a much bigger role than we would see in adult dating relationships. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's kind of the end of our questions from audience. Um, we now have our final segment of the evening, which is our open mic, in which I let you have a mini TED talk about whatever you want <laughs> for a few minutes. Did you have something in mind? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like we spend a lot of time talking about abusive relationships, which is so important. But I did also want to talk a little bit about healthy relationships and healthy communication. And something that I've been really passionate about is encouraging people to set boundaries with other people in their life. And I think sometimes boundaries get a bad rep. It's like, oh, we're trying to manipulate somebody's behavior. We're telling them that they could only be close to us if they behave in X, Y, and Z ways. And the way that I'll view boundaries is a little bit different. I view boundaries as protection. And I view boundaries as these expectations that we set for people that people have the choice whether or not they're going to honor those boundaries and then it's really up to us to enforce those boundaries if that makes any sense at all um so i really want to encourage folks out there to think of boundaries as a way that you are saying hey if we are going to be in this intimate relationship with one another i expect a certain level of communication or respect or whatever the case may be and if you can't meet that that's okay I just think we're going to have to reevaluate the level of intimacy that we have. And I think it's perfectly healthy, it's perfectly normal, and it really does protect your own mental health. So have those, have those difficult conversations around boundaries. I think it's so important for a healthy relationship to really flourish and thrive. Yeah. And what you said about having difficult conversations is so important as well, because once you set a boundary, you do need to communicate it properly, especially if it's a loved one. You want to make sure that, you know, they're not misunderstanding when you do set that boundary as well. And also you just want to be clear for your own sake. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's probably, I know there are folks who really struggle to communicate the boundary and then there are folks who struggle to maintain it. And I am definitely on the side of maintaining, but I empathize with folks who have that difficulty just clearly communicating what it is that they're looking for and what it is that they're needing. Because oftentimes what they're asking for is perfectly reasonable. Like, hey, if you're frustrated with me, just bring that to me instead of going on social media. Or I would rather us have a calm conversation than to be yelling at one another. These are all perfectly reasonable things to expect from someone but it can feel really hard to communicate that in a way that the person that you're talking to doesn't feel attacked, doesn't feel like they're doing something necessarily wrong, but they're able to hear you and say, you know, I do want to maintain this relationship. I do want to be close to you. And so I'm willing to just meet those expectations and adjust accordingly. And it's a really, it's a really, really challenging, but I do encourage people to continue to practice. You know, I never say practice makes perfect, 
but practice does make us better. So continue to practice setting those boundaries, maintaining them and communicating them. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. 100%. It gets so much easier the more that you do it. And, and honestly, you just become better at it. Like I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, does it become easier? I think so. But I think it's because you're really growing that skill. You are becoming better at it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, well, I guess that's kind of the end of our episode, uh, which has been pretty rough, uh, but you've answered all of these questions so warmly and so clearly. Um, I, I'm sure that people who maybe might've had expected to have a tough time, I'm sure they're kind of realizing that it's been gone just flown by <laughs> really yeah. quickly so thank you so much uh, for making this conversation so easy oh thank you and thank you for having me again i'm really excited to share this information and i hope that it helps even one person out there absolutely where can um members of our audience find you yeah i just started my instagram around my uh, mental health practice and around being a professor so definitely check me out on Instagram, Dr. M. Kearney. That is where you'll be able to have the most communication with me. Uh, yeah, I'm like on Instagram all the time. Um, but really enjoying having that professional space to have these kind of conversations. So check me out there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Reliscope, the Relationship Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. For more episodes like this from 10 different life management perspectives, search LMSL on YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, so you can get updated on everything we have to offer. We have a wide range of topics readily available for you to check out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps us grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found at re.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Aditi Kuti, thanks for tuning in.